Well, good morning again. If we haven't met, my name is Brad Cheney, and we're starting, as Brian said, a new sermon series in the life of David that I'm really excited about preaching. Um, it's a ser- series that will carry us up through Advent. And uh, as part of our worship every week, what we're going to try and do is r- read and then sing a Davidic psalm, which seems to fit in some way with the passage. And so uh, you notice that with Psalm 139 today, and we'll, we'll keep doing that throughout the series. If you go to the opening words of the New Testament, the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, it reads, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of yeah, David. Then you flip all the way to the very uh, end of your Bible, to the very last chapter of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, and the, almost nearly the last verse of Revelation 22. And these are the words of Jesus where he says, I am the root, I'm the root and the offspring of, there it is again, David. And I could give you, you know, numerous other examples, but what you find, the relationship between Jesus and David is a, a truly colossal theme of the New Testament. And, you know, every church has, in some sense, the same challenge, and And I guess this is true of every organization. You talk about organizational culture. But, I mean, the challenge is always to keep the main thing the main thing. And and for us at All Saints, the main thing are the things such as uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the the person and work of of Christ, Um, you know, what you believe about the end times, you know, what millennial theology you hold to, whether you're a believer's Baptist or paedo-Baptist. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, none of those are hills to die on. But, I mean, Christ is, is, is the hill. <laughs> and if we're going to die anywhere, let it be on, on that hill. And, and so that's what I think what I'm most excited about in this sermon series is discovering all the different ways that David points us to Jesus Christ. I'm going to have a few of those uh, in today's sermon, and, and hopefully in, in every, every sermon I preach. Did you know that the David story is the most extensively narrated story in all of the Bible? You know, except for Jesus, the Jesus story, as narrated in the gospel, the David story is the most extensive uh, narrated story. We know more about David than we know about any other character in all the Bible. I never realized that until I read it this week. In fact, I read that the story of David is actually the greatest narrative representation of a single human life in all of antiquity. You, you look through the annals of, uh, of antiquity, and there's nothing, nothing like this that focuses on one man and all of his moral complexity. And we will find that, won't we? That David is an extremely morally complex figure, which is going to make him, uh, I think, a lot of fun to study uh, over the next several weeks. So our passage today, as you see in the bulletin, is 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, And I'm going to give you a very brief backstory before we read it. At the end of the previous chapter, what has transpired? The Lord has made his final rejection of the first Israelite monarch, King Saul. Uh, and the prophet Samuel is, is grieving the fact that the, the first monarch, the man who started out with such promise, um, such pageantry, King Saul, has turned out to be, uh, frankly, an antichrist figure, an evil figure. Uh, and he has rejected God and 
And so we read this then in verse 1. And the Lord said to Samuel, Well, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. Uh, But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And the, the Hebrew word here for sacrifice, is, it's, it designates the type of sacrifice that one might have a religious feast. Uh, a portion of the animal after it was sacrificed is eaten by the people as part of a religious feast, which is important um, as the story proceeds. Verse 3, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and the sacrificial feast, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Um, presumably, either because when a prophet comes to your town, he might, he might have some bad words to share with you, or uh, the elders of the city may realize that there has been a, a tremendous falling out between Saul and Samuel, and it's, it's dangerous to the inhabitants to, to harbor Samuel at this point. And they asked him, do you come in peace and shalom? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he, then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then he, he had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one it's kind of like each one of them is trying on Cinderella's glass slipper, <laughs> and it doesn't fit on any one of them. Then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord Yahweh has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse answered, There is still the youngest, <laughs> the runt of the litter, but he is tending the sheep. And so he sent, he sent him and, and, uh, and had him brought in. I'm sorry, no, no, I, I skipped a, pay, a line here. Samuel said, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. That is, we will not sit down and enjoy the feast, share the meal until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance. The Hebrew literally says he, w- he had beautiful eyes. He had beautiful eyes and and was handsome. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Will you pray with me one more time? Thank you, Father, for your word Uh, There is nothing like it. And we pray that you would help us hear from you now. 
And that you would also, most importantly, teach us to treasure your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in uh, the greatest measure possible. For we pray in his name. And God's people said, amen. If the expression dumpster fire had been coined 3,000 years ago, uh, Saul's monarchy was just that. It was an absolute dumpster fire. He had rejected Yahweh. Uh, He had, it says, the pronouncement over him was he had become a king like all the kings of the other nations, of the pagan nations. At this point in the story, he's ready to kill God's prophet, the prophet Samuel. But he was tall, he was dark, and he was handsome. And he came from a rich family. He He was the quintessential poster boy for what you would choose and pick out as a king. There's actually, back in um, 1 Samuel chapter 10, in one of the stories there, we read that uh, Samuel has come to anoint Saul to be the inaugural king of the nation of Israel. And so he's called all of Israel together to assemble for this huge moment in their national history. And we're going to anoint our new king. He's going to be selected and it says that Saul is hiding. He's afraid. He's, he's hiding out on the outskirts. So Samuel says, well, go out and find him and bring him here to me. And when they get Saul and they you know, drag him in to the middle of the ring, in the middle of the ceremony, the Hebrew, it's, it says Samuel basically, he says to the whole assembled group, just look at him. He's perfect. <laughs> he, he's, he's perfect. And all of the people say, long live the king. And everybody's happy, and they send up a cheer. And he turns out to be a disaster. So then I I say that. Notice where we're at in the story. We are at the point where Saul is going, I mean, Samuel is going to anoint a second king. This is Samuel, go and anoint another king, part two. And does Samuel, Samuel was the godliest man in all of the country, what does Samuel think at this moment? Does he say, well, yeah, we've, we've been down this road before. We, we learned our lesson before. Um, handsome doesn't matter. Appearance doesn't mean anything. Is that, his, is that his disposition? No, he's like Eliab. Tall, check. Dark, check. Handsome, check. Strapping, check. And he, the godliest man in the, in the nation, makes the exact same mistake again in part two. Now, before we, uh, you know, stick an accusing finger into his chest, you have to remember, keep in mind how important those characteristics were in their day. William Wallace, the great Scottish hero of Stirling Bridge, 1300s, the character that um, we know him, Mel Gibson, Braveheart, he plays that role. So historians estimate that William Wallace... He was six feet, five inches tall. In a day when the other warriors on the field of battle that he'd be fighting against were on average five feet, five inches tall. William Wallace stood an entire foot above everyone else on the field of battle. In fact, you can go to Scotland today. You can see William Wallace's sword. It is, it's in one of the museums there. The sword that he used, the sword itself measured four feet, four and a half feet in length. And like his sword was almost as tall as the guys he was fighting against on the field of battle. 
And by the way, um, Mel Gibson was not quite that tall, <laughs> isn't that tall. He really doesn't capture the part. But you could, just hearing that, you understand how, I mean, he would have just dominated the field of battle. He would have mowed them down. Uh, and you could see how it would be, um, how a king needed to be that, that tall, strapping, muscular Adonis type. That was the outward appearance that the people in, their, in that day we're looking for. What is the outward appearance that the people in our day are looking for? Another way of putting it, what do Americans prize externally? New York Times columnist and author David Brooks, in one of his books, he tries to tackle that question. What is the kind of outward appearance that is prized in America? And he begins by saying it's a fairly difficult question to answer because America is a is a fractured culture. We're, we're full of all these different subcultures, and each subculture has its own characteristics, uh, which we, what we prize and the outward attributes that we admire, you know, based upon the subculture. He says, as you look across the landscape of America, from hip bohemia to ethnic enclaves, through the suburbs and into the far, farthest farm towns, what you see is a lot like a big high school cafeteria with all the little cliques. You know, the jocks sit here, the geeks sit there, the drama people sit over here, the druggies sit somewhere else, and they all go to different parties, they all talk about different things, they all see different realities. And so it is with every clique in America. It has its own status system. It has its own code of honor and its own ways of validating, and its own exaggerated sense of its role in society. Then he goes on to narrow it. He says, yeah, it's hard to to do the broad bus strokes, but I'm going to narrow it down into three major categories. And we'll just look at these briefly, trying to answer the question, what do we as Americans prize? The achievement life, the the aesthetic life, and the virtuous life. The achievement life, as the name suggests, in the achievement life, the outward appearance that is valued the most is what we have accomplished. What we have done in our work, uh, at work, or with our family, or with our children, those are the things that we want other people to see about us and be impressed with. You know, I've, I've worked my way up the ladder of success in my job. Or, you know, look at my kids. And we have all these kid photos on, <laughs> on Facebook. You know, look at my kids. My kids are so great. Look at all the things that they've accomplished. And the achievement life, I don't think it requires a lot of comment. I mean, the achievement life is just all around us in Meridian, Idaho. Probably the number one um, characteristic of the outward appearance that we value. The second one, the aesthetic life, he defines as a collection of wonderful and beautiful moments and experiences that are communicated mostly through images. Or you might say the life that we curate on social media. So here's an interesting related story. Instagram. Have you ever heard how Instagram started? Well, it began as a, a modest platform shared among a few guys who were, I think they were primarily gamers. And one of the founders had this, yeah, modest platform 
Uh, about 50 of his friends were on it. And they were trying to figure out, well, what's the best way for us to use this? When someone in the group or several people in the group started posting photos on it. And I forget the name of the founder, but this guy, he, he was down on, vac- on vacation in Mexico with his wife. And he said to his wife, yeah, maybe we could just turn this into something that people would put their pictures on. And she replied to him, no way. I would, n- no way. And he said, well, why not? And she said, if I were to put my pictures on there, you know, so-and-so's pictures are so much nicer and so much more interesting. Mine would look like dumb and pathetic in comparison. And he said, it was a podcast. Uh, he said, at that moment, the penny dropped and I realized what I needed to do. I left the poolside and went upstairs into my hotel room. And for the remainder of the day, I started researching image filters everything I could find out about image filtering and began to then start writing code for that on the platform. And that's how the entire thing started. And so with, you could say with Instagram or with Snapchat, I can self-curate the parts of my life, the wonderful and beautiful moments and experiences. And oh, by the way, now I can even alter my appearance to achieve the maximum aesthetic impact. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, I will share this other sermon might be long today. Um, so I was trying to figure out what I should cut out of it. But I think uh, one other, not the main point of the sermon, but consider this. And Neil Postman in his book, some of you read it, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It was written back in the 1980s. It's a little dated, but oh man, it was prophetic. Amusing Ourselves to Death. So Postman writes, he says that in 1858, we had a very important activity that happened in the United States of America. Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln had their fabled Lincoln-Douglas debates. It was a debate about everything as as it related to our our national direction and and so forth. And the transcripts of the Lincoln-Douglas debates were published in pretty much every newspaper in all of America. And, and whoever was literate, I mean, everybody read those debates. And if you, man, when you go back and read them now, you, you just say, why were they so much smarter then than we are today? You know what I mean? Um, because there's, that's some very high-level thinking that was taking place that your average Joe, Jim, and, and Sally were reading. But Postman makes this point that if Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln at that time, were to walk down the, the city street, the main, main street of any, city, of any city in all of America, probably only like 5% of the people would even recognize them. And why is that? Because photography had already been invented. But what, the reason is, is because they didn't know how to distribute it yet. I mean, everything was sent by, by wire service, and you can send photographs by wire service. So you have the Lincoln-Douglas debates printed in the newspaper, but you don't have any images of those men. And therefore, how did people decide who to vote for in the national election? It was based upon ideas, not headshots. So what was the first presidential debate that was televised on uh, nationally, U.S. television. Who, who was in that presidential debate? 
Kennedy and Nixon. JFK, Richard Nixon. Who is the more attractive man? (laughs) Don't you think it kind of helps? I mean, John Fitzgerald, Kennedy, the king of Camelot. I mean, up next to Richard Nixon is like, ew, this guy is so, you know, washed out and dead. Don't you know that that, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already realize, but images have completely changed the way that we do the world. The external appearance has completely changed the way that we do the world. So the third option, very quickly, the virtuous life. People want to communicate an outward appearance of morality for others to see and approve of. Now, sometimes you hear Christians make a mistaken categorization of our society. Oh, we're more secular People don't care about morality anymore. No, 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 they, they do. They care a lot about morality. I mean, how many selfies have you seen on your social media platform are pictures of me uh, walking in the stand up for your rights parade or me spending the weekend at the Humane Society or, or me writing down a rant on some, you know, some social or political issue, you know, read my rant. Um, if you pay a lot of, if you pay any attention to social media, you realize a tremendous amount of virtue signaling goes on in social media. There are a lot of people signaling the virtuous life that they want others to notice. So yes, I think Brooks hit the target when he used those three you know, big categories: the achievement life, the aesthetic life, the virtuous life. And let's see if I can. Maybe make that stick with the text, or <laughs> return to the text here and find a connection. Back to the story. So we have a Cinderella episode. The glass slipper is put on each one of Jesse's son's feet, and their feet are too large. Each one of them are rejected. Then Samuel says to Jesse, somewhat humorously, uh, are, are these all of your sons? Is there anybody else? And with the text makes clear is the fact that David's own father, it never even occurred to him, it never even occurred to him that David could be the man. His own father, it never even occurred to him to go call for the youngest because the youngest did not look like a man of war. He did not look like a king. He looked like Justin Bieber. (laughs) He was a man that he... I thought that was funnier than you do. Come on. He was a man of beautiful eyes. He was a man of of fair complexion. Um, He was a, yeah, boy band singer. Literally, if there were eight men in the room, he would literally be the last one you'd look at and say, that's your king. It never even dawned on his dad. But then we get to verse 7, and why don't you take your bullets in? Because it's so important, we're going to read it out loud together. But, all right, well, ready? Verse 7, together aloud. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, 
but the Lord looks at the heart. The heart is what matters to God. I know you have heard that before. If you've had heard it before, ad infinitum. <laughs> the heart is what matters to God because the heart, the Bible says, is our true person. Over and over again, that's testified to in the Proverbs. Above all else, guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As water reflects a man's face, so a man's heart reflects the man. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I love John Calvin's motto. It was said to be his life motto. And it was this, My heart I offer to you, Lord, sincerely and promptly. That was the motto of his life. My heart I offer to you promptly and sincerely. Um, David is elsewhere in 1 Samuel called a man after God's own heart. Much of this sermon series will be unpacking uh, what that means. But if you read through the remainder of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, um, what you will find is that pronouncement about David is truly a baffling, an outright baffling pronouncement. Uh, If Saul's monarchy, as we started the sermon by saying, it was a dumpster fire. If his monarchy was a dumpster fire, well, David's love life was a dumpster fire. And David's parenting was a dumpster fire. And David was such a man of bloodshed. At one point, Saul says, so you want to marry my daughter, do you? All right. Well, the dowry price for my daughter is, we'll just say, 200 Philistine foreskins. And David says, uh, I can do that. <laughs> you got it. Will you take 201? And that's what he brings. I mean, that is disgusting, is it not? Taking mutilated corpses, and he brings him back 200 foreskins. We'll read... Um, Other episodes where it looks as though the only thing David cares about is saving his own neck. There is one point where David and his men, in order to cover up to the Philistine king that they have taken uh, refuge and harbor with, to cover up their actions, they go out and they slaughter an entire village to cover their tracks. Um. So there are a lot of disturbing tales in the David story. I mean, he's been called by some. I thought, wow, you, you could see why this charge would be leveled by, against him. He's been called by some the first Machiavellian prince. Now, I don't agree with that. But, I mean, what? Failed marriage, failed father, father barbaric behavior with a talent for poetry. <laughs> You know, that is, that's David. So when we say that David is a man after God's own heart, we mean, A, that he is a morally complex character, and we mean, B, exactly what that statement says, that though he is a fallible, fallible man, he nevertheless 
was really chasing after the heart of God. And I'll put the question to you. Does that characterize you? Does that characterize your life? Like when God gives the evaluation over over you, am I a man, am I a woman who is really chasing after the heart of God, hungering for the presence of God? Um, Psalm 63 in it, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My flesh faints for you. My soul longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Um, Or Psalm 139, you know, both of those being Davidic. Um, You know, a man who has thought very deeply about what it means to be known by God and to know God. Those are the themes. You saw that in the sidebar of your bulletin of Psalm 139. Uh, A friend of mine shared with me this week a practice that he's recently begun. He said, before I begin to surf the internet or look at Facebook or look for a movie or a YouTube video to watch, I began to ask myself the simple question, what am I seeking? What am I looking for? And by asking myself those questions, they serve as a tool to help me capture my mind at that moment before it begins to wander like, what am, I, what am I seeking right now? What am I looking for? And the text never says how David, you know, it doesn't give you the 10-step formula to, here's how you become a man after God's own heart. But as you read further in the story, what will become increasingly clear is the time that David spent with the sheep in the pasture that was preparatory time. God was using that time in David's life to prepare him to meet Goliath in the next chapter (laughs) and to prepare him to be the Bible's and the world's most renowned poet and to be the the true king of Israel. Um, The the pastor was a place of, of obscurity, of course. I mean, nobody was paying attention to what he was doing there. Uh, It was a place of monotony, of course. David, what did you do today? I just watched some sheep walk from here to there. The pasture was a place of silence and solitude. Um, It was a place to pull out his lyre and strum, to write songs, to pray. Uh, And it was also a place where God developed his courage. He learned how to use a slingshot to fend off wild predators, which turns out to be kind of important in the next chapter. In all of these ways, Jesus, I'm sorry, David serves as a picture of Christ, as a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus too, I mean, where did his preparation take place? It was in a place of, of, of obscurity, wasn't it? In a backwaters town, small town as a carpenter. He too, like David, had a regular blue-collar job. He wasn't even recognized as a rabbi. He wasn't on the who's who's list of most likely to become Messiah. Um, His outward appearance, did Jesus look the part? Did he look like the next Messiah of Israel? I mean, unlike David, who at least David was handsome, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus that, quote, he would have no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't have the outward appearance. But simply put, Jesus had the heart. 
He had the internal beauty that he had received from the Lord. And uh, just like David, the Spirit rushed upon Jesus and enabled him to, to go out and do spiritual battle against his enemies. Um, there's one tantalizing potential picture of Jesus that is found later in chapter 16. I, I almost included it in our scripture reading, but again, I thought the sermon would end up being running long. But if you read it later today, you'll find that just in the, the exact succeeding verses. So the story is that Saul is being oppressed by some type of demonic spirit. Uh, there is an, it says an, an evil spirit has come upon Saul to torment him. And that evil spirit has been allowed by God to do it as a judgment against Saul for, for his unfaithfulness. Well, there's also a man in Saul's court who somehow knows about David. He knows that David is a renowned musician. That David is extremely skillful with the, with the harp, with the lyre. And so he's, he just mentions David's name to, to, to the court. And Saul says, I'll bring him in here. I'll take whatever relief that I can get. And when David comes in, he plays music for him. We can imagine him pulling out the lyre and singing in in a a high falsetto voice. And it says that when David did so, the the beauty of the music was, was torment for the demon. And the demon fled from King Saul. And so David ends up performing an exorcism through the beauty of his music. And it just got me thinking, you know, back in January, when I preached on the creation account, I, if you were here, I tried, to make, I tried to make the case that Genesis 1 was actually a song. It, it's both God speaking a word, let there be light, but the entirety of Genesis 1 is structured in the form of a song that God, you know, sung the universe in, into being. You know, I haven't explored this at all, but I wonder if there are other places in Scripture that, that think about the voice of God primarily in, the, in terms of being melodic, uh, uh, you know, uh, song-like. And so when we read of Jesus in the New Testament coming upon a demon-possessed man and saying, get out of him, he speaks a word. But I just wonder if, like, demons can hear harmonic frequencies <laughs> That you and I cannot. And that if in some sense the voice of Jesus is a, is a melody that they're hearing and they cannot understand. And what David was doing later in Psalm, uh, chapter 16 is uh, kind of setting the table for, for that. Um, very briefly, a couple of practical considerations and, and then we'll be done. Number one. Some of the most beloved fairy tales were written in the 19th century by a man whose, whose name is uh, George MacDonald. Uh, the, the Princess and the Goblin, how many kids? Raise your hand. Parents, you can do it too. Raise your hands. Have you read The Princess and the Goblin before? It's fantastic. Hey, parents, you re- actually, you really need to read it. It's, it's a gem of, of a work. So the sequel to The Princess and the Goblin is The Princess and Curdie. Curdy is a little miner boy. He works in the mines who meets an ancient fairy queen, and the fairy queen sends Curdy on a quest. And uh, the, the little boy is sent on a dangerous quest. And do you remember how, he, how he's commissioned for the quest? 
in order to get him ready for it, this, the, uh, the, the, the fairy queen gives Curdy a special power. She has him put his hands in a fire of rose petals, and it burns him. It's very painful. But when it's done, he discovers that he has a new power, that when he takes somebody's hand, he can discern through the outward appearance and detect what is really in a person's heart. So at one point in the story, he takes the hand of uh, a horrible monster named Lena, and he, and he feels inside um, a little girl. And then at another point in the story, he takes the hand of a, a regal-looking king or a, a beautiful woman, and he perceives the claw of a vulture. And that's how the story, uh, the fairy tale goes. And we say to ourselves, wouldn't that be nice to have that power? To, to not be duped by externals, to be able to see what is truly inside of a person, you don't have that power. You don't have that power. And the people who think they have that power, the people who are continually judging the motivations and the, you know, what makes you tick kind of thing, of another human's heart, that's, that's actually God's power alone. And we must be very cautious when we try to, to, to do that. Um, you know, the Bible talks a great deal about the blackness of our own hearts and the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And um, I, that, that just has to be admitted. But in this passage, it's really touching on a different message. And that is that... The, that God can transform a heart into something that's internally beautiful. You know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost at work inside of you, as a total sheer act of His grace, if we pursue God, um, the Spirit can take all of the different things in our lives and use it to reform and, and make our hearts beautifully alive. The second thing, and, and I'll close with this, you know, you know that the emphasis on physical beauty and looks and polish and appearance has been absolutely devastating, particularly to the lives of women. It has. Um, you know that eating disorders didn't even exist 150 years ago. Yeah. You know that pornography is nothing more than, well, it is more than, but, but it is essentially the glorification of the external over the internal. And uh, in The Great Divorce, the, the great story by C.S. Lewis, a busload of tourists go up from hell into heaven to take a guided tour of heaven. And there's the main character. And if you remember, who turns out to be the tour guide for the main character in The Great Divorce? None other than George MacDonald. <laughs> See, George MacDonald had such an influence on C.S. Lewis as a kid. His stories had such an influence on Lewis. He writes, he writes George MacDonald into the story. And MacDonald takes the, the main character through a, a tour of heaven. And at one point, they see this woman who is beyond description beautiful coming towards them. And she's surrounded by young men and women who are dancing and singing around her. And the main character asks George MacDonald, is this, is this, uh, and it's almost like he's going to say, is this a goddess? Is this Venus? Is this Aphrodite? And George MacDonald replies, it's someone you have never heard of before. 
On earth, her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green, a tiny town in England. Well, I said, but she seems to have been a person of enormous importance. Yes, she was one of the great ones who ever lived, but you'd never heard of her. Don't you know that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two quite different things? Well, I said, she must have had a huge family. Are, are these her sons and daughters? No, said my guide. She had none, actually. Well, then who are all these young men and women at her side? Every young man or boy she met became her son. Even if, he was, if it was only the boy who brought meat to her back door, Every girl who met her was her daughter. Everyone who came near had his or her place in her love. In her, this is such a good line, in her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. There is enough joy in the little finger of a great saint like her to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Sarah Smith. Sarah Smith is, is who is beautiful in the eyes of God. She, hers is the self that God sees. And it serves as a reminder, even if you could be a supermodel, you know, that's temporary. That's, it's over. It's peripheral. It's, it's not real. Even if you could be a drop-dead supermodel, that would only be for a moment, um, But by God's grace, he is working inside of us uh, a beauty in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.